Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, August 19th, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week I was surfing the net. And I came across a site I had never heard of. Now, some of you are teachers, so maybe you know of this site. It's called Owlcation.org. Anybody ever heard of Owlcation.org? It was new to me. Their About Us section says that they're a website created by educators and experts on topics related to education. So I'm like, well, we have a lot of educators in our congregation. This might be worth checking out. They say they offer topics from the 10 most important moments in history to the different types of owls in Florida. Yeah, I'm not really big on the different types of owls in Florida, but I am big on history. So I decided to click on the 10 most important events in history. And that, that's kind of, how do you narrow it down to 10, right? Like so many things have happened in history. So in no particular order, here are some of the 10, according to owlcation.org, most popular or most important events in history. It starts with the Renaissance, whether it be science, astronomy, art, philosophy, or any number of other disciplines. This was that time in our history where we recognized there is so much we still don't know. And people dedicated themselves to going off in new areas and breaking new grounds. They listed the Pax Romana, the 200 or so years of relative peace in the Roman Empire, when they were the superpower in the world. And a number of engineering marvels were created during this time as they sought to find a way to carry out this civilization within the Roman Empire. Or we have uh, Johannes Gutenberg and his printing press. This invention in 1440 completely changed the way information was communicated. And I believe this was the first most important invention since sliced bread, if if I know my history. Uh, Then we've got the Reformation. Martin Luther and his 95 theses pushed for reform not not only within the Catholic Church, but actually ended up launching the Protestant Reformation. And then we've got the American Revolution, right? A combination of some early Greek and Roman civilizations combined with biblical authority. This was a recipe for freedom and independence from British tyranny. Can I get an amen? There we go. These are just five of the ten most important moments in history. But I do have to lift up one more, a sixth one that was on the allocation list, and that was the life of Jesus. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you have to admit, the life of Jesus has had a tremendous impact on world history for close to 2,000 years. And actually, it's that date, 2,000 years ago, that I, that I was thinking about this week. We, we've all heard the the, uh, the terms when it comes to dates, right? B.C. and A.D. And we know that B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D., uh, contrary to popular opinion, does not mean after death. A.D. is from the Latin Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So it would make sense that when Jesus was born, then they switched the calendars, right, from B.C. to A.D. Not exactly. Scholars actually believe that Jesus was born, are you ready for this, around 4 B.C. It kind of blows your mind, right? Jesus was born four years before Christ. The Christ was born four years. How is this possible? 
How did they get this problem wrong? Well, let me introduce you to Dionysius Exegus, a brilliant monk who lived in Rome around the 500s. And he's actually the one responsible for changing how time was measured in the empire and ultimately throughout the entire world. Using information at his disposal, Dionysius fixed the year of Jesus' birth and noted it as Anno Domini, or in the year of our Lord, meaning whatever year it is, that's how many years it's been since Jesus was born. But you know the phrase, close but no cigar? Yeah, well that goes to Dionysius. Uh, he, uh, He was remarkably close, so close, when he fixed the year as 1 AD. But based on information that we now have, uh, we know that Jesus was actually born several years before 1 AD. So rather than fixing all the calendars and having to go back and renumber the years all the way to the 8th century, we simply acknowledge, no, Jesus was likely born somewhere around 4 BC, and lived uh, until 29 or 30 A.D., which would suffice for his 33 years, that scripture tells us. Well, welcome to the third week in our August sermon series entitled, Rediscovering Scripture, How the Bible Came to Be. Now, this isn't your typical sermon series, where instead of talking about passages in the Bible and digging in deep to what this may mean, we're actually talking about the actual books of the Bible themselves. Uh, It's a series that's steeped in history. So if you are not a history buff, just hang on. In two more weeks, the series will change, I promise you. Uh, But we started by looking at the Hebrew scriptures, uh, who wrote the books, when they were written, how the Old Testament kind of came to be formed and put together. And then last week, we examined the books about Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today, we're going to look at all the rest of the books in the New Testament. I hope and pray that whether you're a history buff or not, uh, this endeavor will actually deepen your appreciation of the power of the Bible, which took quite some time to form and and has withstood the test of time for so many years. Much of today's sermon will be based on uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton's wonderful book, Making Sense of the Bible. And if you want to go in even more depth than I've been able to share with you, uh, then this book is for you. Or it also lifts up, he lifts up some of the more challenging passages from the Bible. And how do we as modern Christians make sense of some of these difficult passages? I highly recommend his book. But if we're going to start with the writings of the New Testament, we have to start with Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, who actually himself didn't start out as the Apostle Paul. He started as Saul of Tarsus. He was a young Jewish leader. He was zealous for the law, who personally took on the task of persecuting the early followers of Jesus. And he was excellent at his job, let me tell you that. And then sometime around 33 AD, uh, three or four years after Jesus' death and resurrection, something shocking happened. While he was on his way to persecute some more Christians in Damascus, he suddenly encountered this blinding light on the road. And he heard, no one else in in his group with him, but he himself heard the voice of Jesus. And it it was so startling to him that this persecutor of Christians did a 180-degree turn and now became Christianity's greatest advocate. And from that moment on, Saul would no longer be called Saul. He would go by his Greek name, Paulos, or Paul. And Paul decided to take the story of Jesus everywhere. Here's three different routes of his missionary journeys. You can see all the different towns that he went to. This is how it would normally play out. Paul would roll into town, 
would be so excited. You know, he grew up as a Jewish leader, a Pharisee. So he would go straight to the synagogue and start telling people about how Jesus is the Messiah that everything in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures point to. And he would have a great time until they kicked him out. And they got tired of hearing what he had to say because not everyone was open to that. And so then he started preaching to everyone else who's not Jewish, the Gentiles, in the town. And before he left a town, he would pull the people together into a church. And then off he would go to preach somewhere else. Of the 27 books that are in the New Testament, 21 of them are letters. And the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of those letters. And he wrote, scholars believe, between probably 50 and 65 A.D., which makes Paul's letters actually the oldest documents that we have in the New Testament. Adam Hamilton reminds us that when we read Paul's letters, we have to remember that really we're reading someone else's mail. It sounds kind of strange, but we Christians today sometimes forget this and we think, oh no, Paul wrote for us. He was just dispensing general Christian information for for us today. No, like we mentioned last week with the Gospels, when Paul wrote his letters, he wrote to address specific needs in specific communities from specific situations in a Greco-Roman culture some 2,000 years ago. So when Paul wrote to the church in Galatia or the church in Corinth or the church in Philippi, he was addressing particular issues that they were struggling and wrestling with at that moment. He wasn't writing general spiritual wisdom for all of us, and yet, still today, many of what, much of what he said we can take and apply to our own lives. We have to remember, though, Paul wasn't writing for us. And so when we begin to understand this original intent and context of Paul's letters, not only they become more meaningful, also, Adam Hamilton says, it helps us be less likely to misapply their teachings. That not everything applies to our situations as it did to theirs. The worldview and our culture has changed over the course of 2,000 years in so many different areas. Well, churches back in the day found Paul's letters so helpful, they started copying them and then passing them on to other churches. Even though those weren't the original churches they were intended to, they began to give wisdom and insight and instruction to so many, and they became the earliest nucleus of our New Testament. Well, the process by which various documents and writing came to be considered as sacred or holy scripture is known as canonization. It's a big word, but basically the Greek word for canon was a measuring rod. And when it comes to the Bible, that helps us sort of lift up these books, which all other books were measured by, to see if they were worth being authoritative and holy. When Jesus and his disciples were in ministry, their sacred works, books, were the works of the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and the canon of the Old Testament didn't get established until the second century A.D., meaning many years after Jesus' death and resurrection, but they still looked back to the scriptures and saw how that was the basis of their faith. And then in the early uh, years following Jesus's ascension to heaven, uh, Adam Hamilton reminds us the New Testament wasn't a book at all. The New Testament was a person. It was Jesus. And so the disciples and the apostles would, would follow along and would tell people about the stories that they'd experienced with Jesus, and others would hear those stories and then tell them to other people, and that's how it spread. And yeah, they drew upon the Hebrew Scriptures as pointing to Christ, but the main focus of their preaching in the early church was the amazing power that came from the resurrection of Jesus. Even Paul, in his letters, uh, said that 
that Jesus' sayings had greater authority than even his own words. And it's doubtful that Paul thought when he was writing these particular churches that he was writing something that would be equated with, with the story of Jesus. I don't think he had that concept, oh, this is going to be Scripture. No, he was just trying to be helpful for churches that were struggling with issues back in the day. To get a sense of this, I want us to look at this short passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. It says this, Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, uh, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I love this because there's some, uh, a few interesting points that I think can be gleaned from these three simple verses. And although the book's title, uh, author is named as Peter, it most likely was not the disciple Peter uh, that spent time with Jesus. Um, someone else that wrote in his name, and that was a very common tradition, not only in the Bible, but in uh, other ancient literatures, to uh, write in the name of someone, so it seemed to have a little bit more authority. This book, though, Second Peter, is probably one of the very last books in terms of chronology that made it into the New Testament, somewhere around the early 2nd century. The, so the first thing I want to highlight from this is that the author is familiar with Paul's writings. He says, so uh, also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you. So by the end of the first century, the early church had already started distributing Paul's letters. So so, uh, it would become something that was important and they would pass them around even if it wasn't the originally intended congregation. Um, Second, don't feel bad if you're reading some of Paul's letters and you kind of don't get it right? Because he said, you know, there are some things in them, in Paul's writing, that are hard to understand. Like, they even had a hard time understanding it in the second century. So, uh, don't beat yourself up if it's a little bit confusing uh, reading it now. And then third, Paul's teachings were being distorted by some ignorant and unstable people, meaning sometimes people misinterpret what the Bible says. I mean, it happened back then, and it happens today, right? That's why we can argue over one passage about what this means. No, I think it means this and that. Uh, We're in good company. And then fourth, by the end of the first century, Paul's writings are already considered to be scripture by many in the church. Now, remember, scripture means sacred writing. It wasn't uh, the New Testament yet. But that is an amazing story, how the New Testament came to be the New Testament Now, we have to keep the timeline in perspective, right? So, Paul wrote his letters 50 to 65 AD. Then the Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from about 70 with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem till about 100 AD. Uh, And then there were these books and letters and documents that got distributed amongst the leaders and was read by churches. Those were starting to have some authority. Well, in the second century, this guy, Papias, uh, the bishop of Hierapolis, He lived from 60 to 135 A.D. He mentions the Gospels of Mark and Matthew around 130 A.D. Why is this significant? Because remember, the Gospels were all um, anonymous. They didn't have an author connected to it. Uh, uh, Papias was the first one to connect Mark with Mark's Gospel and Matthew with Matthew's Gospel. It was the early church that gave the titles and the, the author to each of the Gospels. So they are starting now... Uh, to, to, to come into play. And then by 140 AD, the entire game changed because of this guy. His name is Marcion. 
He was, his father was a bishop in the region bordering the Black Sea along Turkey, and there's some dispute as to whether he himself was a bishop or not. Uh, but he came to Rome. He had been raised in the East as an Orthodox Christian. And get this, he was struggling with the understanding of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, uh, the God of all creation, and how when he read stories from the Old Testament, it seems like Yahweh was harsh, angry, jealous, and sometimes even petty. And then he sees Jesus, who comes with love and with grace and acceptance, and he has a hard time reconciling the two. Plus, there's that ongoing debate, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? People have been asking that for for centuries, and Marcion was struggling with this. So you'll never guess where he came out. Marcion suggested that Yahweh was not Jesus' father. Let that sink in for a minute. The God who created everything... The author of all life, the one who uh, pulled all the world together, called the Jews his people, and then began to set up how people lived and moved and had their being, including all of the evil and the suffering that came along with it, that was not the true God. That was a lesser deity. Uh, And the true God, Marcion said, nobody knew about him yet, but Jesus came to lead people to him. This was the God of love. And so Jesus, his life of kindness, compassion, and goodness, he came to set humanity free from the yoke of the law that was put in by Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and to lead people into the God of love. And Marcion started doing all he could to separate Judaism from Christianity. Now, Marcion decided to put together what might be called the first draft of the New Testament. He's like, yeah, I'm not into the Old Testament. That's Yahweh's books. We're going to get rid of all of those. We're going to take the Gospel of Luke... And then we're going to have 10 of Paul's letters. That's going to be our sacred books. Uh, And he uh, took out the parts of the gospel that that he didn't think uh, uh, fit with his understanding of God and theology and the parts that kind of didn't kind of go together. He took those out as well. Well, what this did was it actually forced the early church to kind of say, wait a minute, uh, uh, let's take a couple steps back here and decide uh, what are we going to have as books that are authoritative for us. And, of course, Marcion was labeled a heretic by many, but you'd be shocked to know how many people were following him. It was this huge movement that the early church had to struggle with. And it was a crucial time in the formation of the New Testament. In fact, some scholars believe that this is where the concept of having a New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament came to be, because Marcion was trying to distance Christianity from Judaism. Well... Justin Martyr wrote extensively about the early church, and from him we've come to know, uh, if you were going to be a Christian in the second century, what would church look like? Was it just like what we do on Sunday mornings? And Justin Martyr said, well, the first thing that happens is there's this gathering moment where people greet one another, and then they read from the Gospels and the Prophets. Uh, Someone gets up to give encouragement through exhortation, we would call it preaching, and then they pray together, they share Holy Communion, and they finish with an offering. So there's kind of a lot of the elements that are in the service that we do as well. But what's significant is that Justin Martyr said that the Gospels were already, by the, by the beginning of the second century, being read alongside the prophets from the Old Testament. The Gospels had become a weekly part of worship. One of Justin's students was a man named Tatian. 
and he created a document called the Diatessaron, and he decided to combine all four of the Gospels into one continuous story about the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Uh, He took out the redundant material, he kind of put things together, so you just had one book that you had to read. And Adam Hamilton says that, okay, so this is at 170 A.D., The four Gospels are now considered to be authoritative for the church. There were other Gospels that were being circulated, uh, but most of them were written decades after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It didn't really have the traction that those Gospels were. What's interesting, though, is the early church had no problem with Tatian kind of taking this and editing all the Gospels into one. And the Syrian churches found this so helpful that the Diatessaron actually replaced Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for 200 years in their churches. Well, then came along Bishop Irenaeus uh, of Lyon. He wrote in 170 AD, and he stated point blank, okay, no, no, there are only four Gospels that have been given to us by God. They are the authoritative witness of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he was the first person to use the term New Testament when talking about the books that Christians were holding as sacred. But there were still other documents that were being widely read and quoted amongst churches that some were thinking were on par with scriptures. Books like The Shepherd of Hermas, The Didache, First Clement, The Letter of Barnabas. So by the end of the second century, 170 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church still didn't have a set of books that they called the New Testament, the 27 books that we know today. Let's move to the 3rd century. We meet Origen of Alexandria, an early church scholar and theologian. He put together a list of the New Testament books. He had the accepted books and the disputed books. The accepted books, which much all the churches agreed upon, were the four Gospels, 13 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. And then he said, then there's these disputed books. Many of our churches use them and find them helpful, but not everyone agrees. Books like Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. And by the way, this is the first time 2 Peter ever showed up as being a significant book for the early church. We're talking 220 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 2 Peter then jumps on as a possible book to be included in Scripture. In the 4th century, Bishop uh, Athanasius... He wrote his Easter letter to the Christians in Alexandria. The year was 367 A.D. He's the very first person to list the 27 books that we know as the New Testament. He wrote this. These are the springs of salvation, in order that he who is thirsty may fully refresh himself with the words contained in them. In them alone is the doctrine of piety proclaimed. Let no one add anything to them or take anything away from them. And then 30 years later, in 397, the third council of Carthage, it was declared that besides the canonical scriptures, nothing else shall be read in church under the name of divine scripture. So finally, finally, four decades later, the church had its New Testament. 367 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we had our 27 books. Now, there were a few other books quite a few others that didn't uh, make it into the New Testament, didn't make the final cut, and some of them, let me tell you, were very colorful. Uh, So I picked a few of the ones that I thought were most interesting to let you know about them, including the Proto-Gospel of James, allegedly written by Jesus' half-brother, Joseph's son from a previous marriage. Um, It's the tale of the midwife that came to help Mary give birth to Jesus. 
Of course, she didn't believe that Mary was a virgin. I mean, that's a crazy story, right? So she had, um, what should we say? She did a medical inspection upon her patient, Mary, and immediately God punished this midwife's uh, lack of faith, and her offending, inspecting hand started to burn. But fear not, baby Jesus, just a few hours old, reached out and healed her hand, the first of many of his great miracles. Or there's the history of Joseph the carpenter. This tells the world that Mary and Joseph was the ultimate May-December romance. You know what that is, right? May, December, one person is really old, one person not really old. Well, according to this book, Joseph was 89 years old when Jesus was born, and Mary was 15. So there's that, right? Um, The account goes on to describe the death of Joseph 21 years later, written in the first person by none other than his favorite son, Jesus the Christ, which... We didn't know Jesus wrote anything, but evidently he wrote that. Then there's the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. This is a crazy book that regales readers with Jesus' miraculous activities from birth to age 12. Like, oh, remember the time he was out playing in the mud? And he made these clay pigeons, and then he just brought them to life, and they flew away. Oh, or the time that that boy kind of walked past him and, and bumped him on the shoulder, and Jesus got so upset that he killed him on the spot. You don't remember that story? It didn't make it into the Gospels. Oh, then Jesus' neighbors, uh, well, Mary and Joseph's neighbors, got so upset about uh, what, their, uh, what, what Mary and Joseph's son were doing that they started to complain, in which Jesus then caused the neighbors to go blind. You know, because you can't be hating on his parents, right? These and many other fabulous adventures of the Savior of the world while he was growing up. Or we've got the Gospel of Peter, where Jesus comes out of the tomb and suddenly he's as tall as a mountain with two angels as tall as a mountain holding him up on one side. And from behind them, out of the tomb emerges a talking cross. And the cross has a conversation with God in heaven and assures God that the message of salvation has now gone down to the underworld and everyone has heard about Jesus. And then there's the apocalypse of Peter. This book was written as a conversation between Jesus and his followers and it describes all of the horrible things that happen in hell and the awesome things that happen in heaven. In fact, it matches up the different crimes with the punishments that you have in hell. Things like, uh, this is how one commentator summed it up. Those who are blasphemous to God are hung by their tongue. Adulterous men and women are hung by their hair and their feet, respectively, over boiling goop. And then murderers are cast into a pit of horrible, creeping things. Meanwhile, those who go to heaven sing beautiful music, have beautiful bodies with great skin, wear shiny clothes, and smell really nice. So you have to wonder, why didn't those books make it into the New Testament, right? Actually, Adam Hamilton has a wonderful summary of the criteria uh, that may have gone into deciding which books are actually going to be part of the New Testament. And the first, he said, is usefulness. Like, how much did a church, did the church use one of these documents? We've already seen how the Gospels were essential, and they were part of regular worship even in the earliest part of the second century. Paul's letters were found helpful not only to the churches that he wrote to, but then they would copy it and distribute it to other churches. So that was passed on as seen as important. Then you have books like Revelation. Eh, some churches were like, we're not sure how helpful this is. They didn't get a lot of it. 
We don't get a lot of it. But there was enough in Revelation that they say we should hold on to this and see what it is that God wants to teach us through it. This usefulness developed over 350 years. So by the end of that time, they pretty much knew, yeah, these are the books that we're using on a regular basis. Second criteria was consistency, meaning was the document consistent with the faith that had been passed on from the apostles? You've already heard some of the other books, right, that didn't make it into it. It's clear that there's a lot of theology that was not consistent with what Jesus talked about and what Paul was writing in many of his letters. Oh, I didn't share this one. Listen to this from the Gospel of Thomas. Not the infancy uh, Gospel of Thomas, just the regular Coptic Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, Blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man. And cursed is the man whom the lion consumes and the lion becomes man. Thomas 1.7. Isn't that great? I know, you're like, wait, what? It, it's not something you'll be embroidering on a pillowcase anytime soon, is it? Right. Uh, the third criteria of what would make a book uh, authoritative and part of the Holy Scriptures was association, meaning was the book associated with the first generation of Christian leaders? Many of the books that were written in the second century claimed to be written by an apostle, but the dates on them were actually indicated that they weren't. It was just people wanting to get you to think this is important because so-and-so wrote it, even though that wasn't the case. Now, remember, the four Gospels were written anonymously. They claimed no authorship. They didn't try to deceive others into accepting them by putting them under another apostle's name. And then finally, the fourth criteria was acceptance, meaning uh, long before the church started deciding, oh, what books should we put together in our New Testament, um, they were, what were the books that are being used and accepted in, uh, by many of the churches? And so when the vast majority of the churches had accepted a book as being uh, useful and, and holy and authoritative, then really the church as a whole accepted it as well. And, and by the end of the fourth century, just about every book that made it into the New Testament had become accepted by, by the churches. It, it was a long journey getting to the New Testament as we know it. But I still find that it's uh, an amazing, powerful book that has incredible faith and life for us. And I think it's, it's almost uh, mind-boggling to think about the journey that God took over 400 years to bring us the books that we now have in the, in the New Testament. It doesn't, for me, it doesn't take away from the power uh, as if I was thinking that only if the, the Bible would have come, the New Testament would have come down from heaven by God. No, I, I love this journey, the ins and outs, and, and really, as we say, where the rubber meets the road, these are the books that brought life and hope and challenge and encouragement and correction to the churches. Here again, these words that Megan read to us from 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. These sacred writings have been inspired by God. They've shaped by four centuries of history among the early churches, and may each of us, as we read them, continue to be inspired, corrected, instructed, and trained in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. Thanks be to God for the New Testament and the amazing journey that it took to bring it to us. And all God's people said, 
Amen.